Hello, everyone. Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk. This is produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from St. Barnabas Hospital live from the Boogie Down Bronx in the 33rd District, right in the middle of my district. My name is Gustavo Rivera. I represent, as I said, the 33rd Senate District here in the Northwest Bronx. I'm also the chair of the New York State Health Committee, a big fan of this institution, uh, and uh, and I'm happy to be here with you folks. Now, uh, COVID-19 has, has devastated uh, communities across America, and in particular, mm -hmm. communities of color and in New York City. Uh, in fact, this is some of the zip codes right in my district during the height of the pandemic were some of the ones that were worst hit. Uh, and when we look across the country, and certainly here, we see that the most impacted of all have been Latinos and Latinx. Uh, and this is these are terms which I will use interchangeably today. Uh, I usually go to Latinos since I'm more of an old school. In other words, I am old, so stay off my lawn. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the Bronx. The fact that demographics of the Bronx, they're, they're characterized uh, by Latino majority. Uh, and this is certainly not just in the Bronx, but certainly in my district as well. Uh, but the fact that that we are a majority in this borough is actually unique to all the boroughs of the city of New York. We are the only one of the five boroughs, the five uh, counties that have a, a Latino majority. As of 2017, Dominicans uh, make up 22.4% of the Bronx population and Puerto Ricans made up about 19.6%. I should tell you, although I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, I represent more uh, Dominicans than any other state legislator in the country, because as they've gotten priced out of Washington Heights and such, they've moved across the bridges. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of folks that live over here, and most of them live in my district. Uh, and, and the entire United States, the Bronx has some of the highest concentration of both of these Latino groups. And this is not to mention Mexicans that are also very well represented, as well folks from Latin America, sent from Central America, the Garifuna community, et cetera. So it is a wide variety of Latinos that live here in the state of New York, but particularly here in the Bronx in very, very high concentration. And But there's also a reality that even prior to the pandemic, uh, Latinos faced extreme challenges like unemployment, homelessness, major health disparities, actually, as far as health disparities. It is something that I've been dealing with and fighting for, uh, fighting against, I should say, for my entire time in public life. So it should come as no surprise, and certainly for many of us it did not, that there was a higher, that Latinos were at a higher risk for physical, mental, and financial problems due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And, uh, you know, Latinos in the Bronx contacted, uh, they, they got COVID-19 at much higher rates than any other group. Uh, and they experienced the highest rates of COVID hospitalization and death. So we are just that that was the reality of the pandemic. And, and again, just to underline, this is just a way to say that there were things that were already baked into the system, sadly, that just made it worse, unfortunately, uh, and, and tragically for so many Latinos and Latino families. So there's, there's, a, diff there's a, a reason for this. I mean, many Latinos work essential jobs like grocery stores, transportation, healthcare, and manufacturing. Not only did they have an increased exposure to COVID-19, but during the height of the pandemic, these folks, they were still working. They were still getting in trains every day. Uh, most of the people in my district get, in, get on a train every day. Uh, you know, and, and, and we saw that uh, it, there's actually, just to think about the national picture for a second, there are labor stats across the country that show that 13% of Latinos have jobs that allow for, for telework, right? So folks like myself, we had our offices set up in, our, in, 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 our, in my house. Uh, during the entire pandemic, but they are, uh, you know, in the reality is that only 13% of folks that are Latinos nationally have the ability to do that, while it's comparable to 27% for folks who are not. 
So they are less likely to have jobs that offer paid sick leave. They're greater. Uh, there were greater risks of exposure to the virus, um, and uh, they work in close areas or close quarters. And also, uh, let's just be honest, right? There's there's a, there's also a cultural component here. There are multi generational families, both for economic reasons and social reasons, right? My, the apartment that I have, by the way, which is a one bedroom apartment. The people, this is a true story, the folks who live above me who live in the same type of apartment, there's, I live by myself in one bedroom, upstairs, five, a family of five, two two parents and three kids. And that's not rare, right? So when you take all of that together, we have uh, uh, all of these things meant that at the, at the, at the highest, at, at the point where the pandemic was at its worst, uh, communities that already had disparities kind of baked in, it was going to be even worse, right? And there's there's conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, asthma, et cetera. So there's a lot of stuff that uh, that actually has brought us to this point. So we're going to be doing for a little bit, uh, and you've heard me yabber, you know, yap for a while, but but I want to bring uh, the discussion uh, with two folks who are with us, who are going to be uh, who are going to be telling us uh, who are going to be telling us a little bit, kind of talking through what are some of the, some of the ways that we can actually deal with this um, to kind of be uh, realize where we are right now. Uh, and what we could learn from what has happened in the last uh, in the last year. Um, so with us, uh, we have uh, Fabian Wander uh, and Miss Hernandez. Uh, and so I wanted to to welcome you both. Um, and so we'll start with uh, with uh, Dr. Wander. Doctor, correct? Dr. Wander? No, I'm a clinical social worker. Clinical social worker. And Dr. Hernandez, I want to make sure I get this right. Miss Hernandez. Miss Hernandez. Social worker as well. Well, uh, well, well, thank you to both of you. But just let's talk a little bit about. Uh, so, but, but Mr. Wander, tell us a little bit about how you, um, you know, how is how is trauma? I mean, can you define trauma for us, right? Because this is this this thing that we experienced in the last year certainly could be defined that way. So, define define trauma for us. You know, how it's manifested. What are some of the symptoms, uh, and, and how can it be unique in Latino communities? Kind of tell us a little bit about that as we think through what happened last year. Sure, and thank you for having uh, having me here, Senator Rivera, and thanks to our St. Barnabas Hospital as well for hosting this really important conversation. Well, trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event. It could be an accident, it could be a death of a loved one, a rape, natural disaster, uh, and immediately after that event, um, people experience shock, sometimes denial, uh, are typical responses. And um, there are long-term reactions that um, include unpredictable emotions. Uh, so you might just kind of be sad in the middle of the day and not realize it or start crying or become very irritable. irritable. Uh, people, some pe people experience flashbacks, um, maybe sounds from the um, traumatic event, uh, could be smells that they smell that trigger that flashback. It could be, um, you know, many different uh, things that can kind of bring that thought to, to your mind. Um, it can cause, you know, strained relationships. Uh, sometimes people experience uh, somatic symptoms, physical symptoms like headache or nausea. And, you know, I think thinking about like a, a traumatic experience that I have experienced about a year ago, my family, uh, we had a fire in the house and uh, fortunately we all made it okay uh, in the middle of COVID. Uh, but we ended up having to stay and, and rent an apartment and um, our house was filled with smoke. And as we we're leaving, the fire alarms went on um as we're kind of exiting the home 
And then maybe a month later when we were at a rental, um, we were cooking something in the house, the fire alarm went on and we all were triggered. We all mm-hmm. kind of jumped and it was just a beeping sound that triggered us. So we had that traumatic event, uh, which was the fire and the beeping, the noise kind of triggered us and we all kind of froze. And, and, I, and that's kind of an example of what, um, what trauma is and how it manifests and how you can see it in, um, in different people. So you would certainly think that you would certainly agree with me that what we I mean, certainly, first of all, I'm glad that you and your family are safe. Thank I'm you. hoping that you were able to, you know, to move back into your into your into your apartment. But it obviously uh, it is uh, when you think about what happened over the last year and there were so many not only the deaths that we might have been that we might have experienced in our families or our friends, but kind of seeing our communities kind of come to a halt, kind of hearing the the constant, uh, you know, ambulances. I mean, we're SBH right now. The ambulance is going back and forth. So certainly, so based on what you're describing, obviously this this situation that we all went through certainly can be, can, we can say that this has been, that it is going to be, that it is a cause of trauma for an entire, for an entire country, an entire world. And certainly that we can say that, that, that such a thing is going to have a, a large impact on communities that already had healthcare disparities kind of built in, so it was worse for them. Would that be correct to say? Definitely correct to say. Uh, and to add to the trauma, there's something called vicarious trauma. And that's for like healthcare providers, being that we're in a hospital, thinking about all those healthcare providers that, that were supporting uh, COVID, um, COVID patients at the hospital or family members and, and really taking care of them, mental health professionals that were kind of hearing the trauma that people experiences. You start to create, uh, you start to have be impacted by that, and the term is vicarious trauma. So you're almost traumatized by hearing that experience, and you you know have to be aware of those symptoms that you might be experiencing. COVID definitely had an impact on the entire community. The Bronx having these health disparities that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, which included you know led to higher death rates, higher hospitalizations. And so, you know, there is a lot of fear in the in the Latino community uh, about, you know, the, the COVID, COVID, you know, getting back to work, uh, forcing people kind of to be out there. Uh, there are a lot of concerns and fears, and there's also a lot of information, uh, misinformation out there okay. that that isn't language appropriate, and and then it kind of confuses people, and that, that I think is what I've been seeing uh, currently in the Latino community. Gotcha. So so let's bring Mr. Hernandez into the conversation, and particularly based on the on your perspective uh, as a child and adolescent provider. I mean, the context, right? We set I set the larger stage as far as. What are some of the things that we have to deal with in the entire country? How is specifically dealt with the Latino community? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Ms. Wan- Mr. Wander talked about the the what what trauma is generally, and and that, so let's actually drill down specifically as it relates to the perspective uh, of your perspective as a child and adolescent provider. So so tell us a little bit about the, in this context, what do you see particularly for young people, uh, and how this has been you know particularly traumatic for them? Like what, what is what is your sense about where we are? Right. I think, you know, working with children and teens, I feel like the biggest challenge that I've been seeing is definitely the part where they've had to adjust to remote learning. Um, especially with Latino youth, they've had they've had unique um challenges with remote learning. A lot of them are first generation Americans. Mm-hmm. So parents aren't tech savvy, language barrier is a huge issue. Um, also, younger siblings are relying on their older siblings to help with online work. Um, also, now that kids are home doing their 
work, you know, online, sometimes children even have added chores during their school breaks. Um, and also, like you've mentioned earlier, the factor of crowded multi-generational homes. It's really difficult for kids to work in that sort of environment. They're distracted, they're not focused, and they're not able to put out the same work that they would be able to put out like if they were in school in person. Mm -hmm. So that's what I've been seeing a lot. Kids, kids are really having a hard time with remote learning. And actually, let's go a little bit further into that because right. we are, I am, I am thankful that we are hopefully, right, I'm crossing my fingers that mm -hmm. we are near uh, the end of this thing, uh, at least mm -hmm. some transition back to some level of normalcy. I would certainly argue that we cannot go back to normal, but that's a whole different conversation. We have to actually push forward in a different way, I would argue. But in any event, so as we get near the end of this, right, and uh, there's many of us, I am House Moderna myself. Not sure about yourself, but I am House Moderna. There's House Moderna. There you yes, go. Yes, sir. Um, uh, and so, but but as kids go back uh, to to a normal to 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 some level of normal, mm -hmm. what do you think is going to be uh, the 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 consequences, right? The the repercussions, if you will, of this whole uh, new normal, so to speak, that they had to just get used to now that there's going to be resumptions of schools in September, right? We just heard a couple of days ago from the mayor. That there's mm -hmm. going to be a, uh, that it's going to go back to uh, in-person learning and, and start, maybe we should talk about like whether we should still leave some options open, um, you know, some for some virtual learning. But in any event, we're going to go back to that. What it, what do you think is going to be some of the consequences or repercussions of that of the last year in transitioning back to some you know to some level of normalcy in September? Right. Um, you know, with um, some of the consequences of the social distancing for kids. Um, I've seen a lot of kids who have been very reliant on social media, video games to connect with their friends. So I hear a lot of my kids telling me, oh, you know, I don't want to go back. I got so used to staying home. And, you know, they're just spending a lot of their portion of the days just with screen time. Um, so that's one thing that, that I'm hearing come up a lot. And actually, you know, some kids, I think, um, around April, a lot of kids were going back to school for blended learning. And I've actually been seeing, you know, for our program specifically, I've been seeing an increase in referrals since the children have been going back to school. And I believe a part of that does have to do with the difficult that they're having adjusting back to this, what we call the new normal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the kids, it's not the same anymore. You know, some kids can't sit in their lunchrooms anymore. They're wearing masks all day. Um, all the fun subjects like recess, gym, art, music, they're much more limited now. And yeah, I'm not sure how much you can play a trumpet if you have to have a mask on all the time. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and also, you know, they're also confined to one room. They can't move from one room to the other to like they're used to. You know, it's a lot less interactive. So they've been having a lot of trouble, you know, adjusting back to that. So, it, and I think we're all going to have to have a little bit of adjustment time. Uh, so I wanted to, to just, I mean, as we, to, to kind of go down that road a little bit more, right? So we set the con, we set the stage, right? I set the stage broadly, as I said earlier, Mr. Wander, for the entire country, then talking about the Latino community, obviously a lot of the folks that we serve, that live in my district, that you serve every day are, are, are Latino as well. Um, so, and, 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 and Mr. Hernandez talked about the impact that it's had, that it's, that it's likely that it's already having on children um, and some of the challenges that we're going to have to face in the next couple of months as we transition back 
uh, into you know into normalcy. Uh, but you know, as we let's talk a little bit about um, where do you think specifically about the Latino community again that you serve every day, um, and more and more broadly speaking, as we go back to some sort of some normal, what do you think are some of the things that we're going to need to do uh, to to kind of like transition back? And if you have to just Use your expertise, right, and and kind of like make a, an educated guess here as far as what some of the challenges we're going to face, as, as some of the strategies that might help some individuals, because we all have to do this as well, right? Uh, this we've, uh, I know that I'm having I'm having kind of a a tricky time, you know, as much as I as much as I might have been it might have been weird to have an office at home, I had to travel here, so I had to think about the parking, I had to think about the driving, I had to think about all these things. But just talk to us a little bit through about what do you think about some of the strategies that may help uh, for for adults as we come back to, you know, as we reach the end of this pandemic. And and particularly uh, as far as Latinos are concerned, what are some of the things that you think that that, that needs to happen there and some of the challenges we're going to face that are specific to Latino communities as we do that? Sure. So uh, first, you know, I think. Uh, it's really important to provide that support for the Latino community. And um, one of the things that we see is Latino communities have a high underutilization rate of mental health services, right? Mm. And so the Latino communities generally, when there is a mental health challenge, uh, such as anxiety or depression, they see it as uh, something physical or a spiritual problem versus the mental health problem, right? So this, you know, will cause them to see a physician rather than see a social worker or a psychologist. Uh, so th that is one of the challenges I think that, uh, you know, mental health has experienced with engaging the Latino community. There's also changes in behaviors. You know, Latinos are very kind of warm and, and, and they tend to hug each other and, and, and embrace each other when they see each other. And now it's like a different experience, right? Um, and, and, and the cultural norms is, is something that we have to pay attention to uh, when people then, I guess, feel that comfort uh, if they have their vaccines, they can then do that again. But I think there's been a lot of kind of isolation amongst the community, uh, especially the aging community, where a lot of family members feel they're fearful of uh, interacting and getting their, let's say, elderly parents or grandparents sick uh, with COVID. So they were isolated a lot. And that really caused, you know, an increase of anxiety and depression amongst those the, those particular people. Uh, so it's really it comes with a lot of adjustments um, and really looking at, OK, you know, encouraging people to get the vaccine. Um, now that we're vaccinated, we can start doing some of the things that we used to do. You know, bringing that hope back to the community is, is extremely important, um, you know, basing a lot of information on facts so they understand uh, what's happening. Uh, you know, one of the challenges, of course, is language. You know, when you're um, communicating to communities. If the language, if they're not, you know, really strong in the English language, they're not really fully understanding that messaging. So really communicating in, in the language appropriate uh, information, uh, engaging the, the Latino community in their particular settings. Uh, as a mental health professional myself, I change up the way I do my work. Uh, you know, I, I try to, I actually do a lot of my work in the community. I do my work in parks. I do treatment in parks, walk and talk therapy. I think a lot of it has to do with meeting the the person where they are, mm -hmm. and when I mean where they are is physically sometimes where they are, and not expecting them to kind of come into your office and and come see you because they may not feel comfortable, whether go in 
to a, a spiritual institution or, you know, a park or, or another area where people tend to, to be, I think that approach is a lot more effective than expecting people to kind of come through your door saying, I'm really depressed. Yeah. I need help. And what, what would you say, Mr. Hernandez, particularly since there's a, you deal with a particular population, a younger population, right. there's a, there's already a stigma uh, as Mr. Wander was saying about mm-hmm. mental health period, right? And so in particular, when it comes to to children who might not be able to make those decisions for themselves, right? There's the added stigma of the parents going like, I don't want to take my my kid to, like my kid's not crazy or whatever it is that that, that might that, that might be right. there. Like, but what, what, what would you have to, to add to what Mr. Wander said? You know, I think, I mean, kind of circling back to what, what he said, you know, it, it is definitely necessary to be, as supportive as possible and take the time to have empathy for the Latino experience, right? And I think for parents, in order to help them, you know, readjust back to what's coming in September and, you know, and beyond that, I think it's helpful for parents to check in with their children, to try to reestablish routines, very helpful. And, you know, also we spend a lot of time in survival mode. We've been in our apartments, we are not doing the things that we're used to. So I, I am starting to encourage families to try to do their best to do things that they enjoy safely, of course, but, you know, to try to get things back to normal. Well, I would say one thing I would just uh, to, to linger on for a second, and I, mm-hmm. I, I want to see how both of you agree. We're going to both of you agree and we're coming into an end in a second. But um there I, I do believe that there's a lot of effort that we have to make as we think about all these tra- all these uh, all this transition that we're making back to some level of at least normal interactions or normal-ish interactions, I would argue that that we need to actually ask, ask real questions, whether it's, and, and I would say that for someone like myself, the it, it is much broader, like we're talking about transportation, housing, criminal justice, et cetera, but certainly in health, we need to actually approach this differently. I think that what the last year demonstrated is that there's so many systems that are supposed to serve us that didn't. Uh, and we need to actually think through, use the experiences that and, and the challenges that folks, that professionals like yourselves, who have helped so many of us get through this, could actually, we need to think through how we actually transform these systems so that, you know, God forbid we ever find ourselves in a situation like this again, that they actually work to serve us. But just in general, it was just a, a clear, you know, it, it was just a clear uh, sign of how badly they were built to begin with so many of them right so so mr hernandez would you would you agree with me that we need to use this opportunity to kind of reimagine the way that we do this uh and whether you have any suggestions whether it's for someone like a policymaker like myself considerate lobbying if you will that you're about to do uh but do you have any any sense of what what do you think we should be doing to to reimagine how we do this right i think definitely access is the most important thing um you know, families really do like, now we're doing telemental health. So we're doing either video sessions or phone sessions. And I find that families really like this way. They they like, um, they, you know, they can have sessions from the comfort of their home. They don't have to travel. Some some people don't have money to travel to, to, to the office or they yep. still have anxiety about going outside because, you know, the pandemic is still going on. So I think, um just continuing this telemental health is really good it's been working very well for for my patients at least and i think it'll work for most people too see funny enough mr hernandez it, it, that 
you you kind of hit the nail on the head on that one. Uh, there's mm -hmm. actually uh, some proposals to actually keep some of the changes that happened in telehealth that were done because of need during the pandemic. There's right. actually some proposals that I carry <laughs> to change the way that we actually use telehealth and reimburse telehealth uh, permanently, precisely because of what you said. It actually, you know, a lot of it was, you know, by need, right? It was like mm -hmm. making lemonade out of lemons. But we found that in certain cases, it actually is helpful to right. expand access to certain populations that might, you know, as we transition back to some level of normalcy, might not have the same access if we take it away. So you actually, you are, you're ahead of the curve on that one. And I applaud Thank you. you. We're, yeah. we're looking to push for that uh, in the state of New York. I'm going to, I'm going to work on that. Uh, I think that we, we have a pretty good chance of actually passing this series of bills that deal with that. Um, uh, Mr. Wanda, do you, do you agree? Do you have anything else to add? Yeah. Things that yeah. we need to do to transform? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ms. Hernandez. I'm going to build on what you said, but also what you mentioned, you know, there's a, a lot of inequities in healthcare uh, in, in the Bronx and in, in the uh, communities of color. And you see that a lot, right? A lot of that came out in COVID where you see kind of how some people were getting healthcare, some people were not getting the same type of healthcare, all that access, you know. There is systemic racism that is uh, embedded into a lot of these systems, and really, they're, the the systems weren't designed for uh, people who live in poverty or, or, or the different types of challenges that many communities that we work in face. So it's really a good opportunity now to look at those systems and say, how can we make it work better? How can we engage the communities that are underserved? What are they missing that other communities have? How do we kind of fix that inequity that that we see in the healthcare system, whether it be medical health or mental health? So that's definitely important. I think, you know, your point, Ms. Hernandez, to the Wi-Fi, I do a lot of telehealth. And, uh, you know, there are people who do not have stable internet services that don't have the capacity. Uh, I work in a college with college students that you know, we're, we're trying to link uh, or find Wi-Fi hotspots uh, that they can connect to so they can do their work, their schoolwork. Um, so it is a challenge, and it's really a very good example of how these inequities exist where someone can just turn on a laptop and get their work done while someone has to struggle or share a laptop with, with, their, with their three or four kids and their uh, partner uh, and take turns. And you see it's like, well, you're trying to get the same – uh, assignment done or the same uh, project completed, but now you have to wait for everyone else to kind of finish using that that laptop. So I'm really happy, Senator Rivera, that you're pushing this uh, and you're bringing that to the light because it's super important. Uh, and, and really, what we've done, putting those you know band aids on, creating that lemonade, uh, I think it's something that we need to see. Mix band aids worked. and lemonades. I'm not so sure that. <laughs> Well, well, you we know, do that. We, but okay. we, we put a Band-Aid uh, 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 on the on, on the lemon. Wound, what, but happened? no, no, we're we're gonna bring it all together. Okay. We, we put the Band-Aid on that cut. We really didn't. We didn't really solve the problem, right? Uh, you did make lemon out of lemonade by by providing these programs and there's access, but it's a lot bigger than that. And we have to understand how to how to invest into these um, resources and create these equities, um, especially when it comes to technology. I think that's really important. So, so doubling down on the on on providing telehealth, as Mr. Hernandez said, and also, uh, and I agree with you completely, not ignoring the lessons that we were taught. Uh, that well, I should say, 
the lessons that some people were taught, because there's many of us, and I would probably include both of you who kind of, because we do work in these communities all the time, we knew that these inequities existed. We saw them during normal times when, you know, when we could still go to concerts and, you know, outdoor, you know, indoor events, et cetera. The inequities were still there. So you're saying not to ignore what we have been taught by the pandemic and make sure that as we're developing policy, whether it's in telehealth or expanding access to technology, et cetera, that we that we take that seriously and that we lean into actually solving what the pandemic has shown us so clearly. Like and I would and I would agree with with both of you. Not so sure I agree with like pouring the lemon juice in like <laughs> in the, the thing with the cut. That yeah, don't put the lemonade on the cut. Need to work on that analogy, bro, but that's fine. That's fine. I get what you're saying. But but in all but but in all seriousness, I, I want to thank Mr. Wander and Ms. Hernandez. Uh, again, uh, both uh, both very important parts. These are the kind of folks that do work here uh, every day. Um, that uh, you know, in the case of Mr. Fabian Wander, clinical social worker here, and uh, Ms. Shalina Hernandez, licensed master social worker at SBH Health System. Both of them uh, do work every single day to serve the folks here in the Bronx. Uh, in this way, in this great institution, I thank you both for being part of uh, part of this conversation today, and I thank SBH for inviting me to guest host. Uh, to our listeners, I thank you for joining me today on SBH Bronx Health Talk. And for more information on services available at the SBH Health System, visit www.sbhny.org. Uh, that is St. Barnabas Health Network or Health New York, SBH New York. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.